Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you take a casual walk through any bookstore, you will find many books there that talk about how you might live the authentic or productive life. And if you go into a Christian bookstore, again, there will be many books, videos, and other material on how to lead that authentic and productive Christian life. If you turn on some of the Christian television channels, you will see some pastors, and believe me, here I use the term loosely, who are hawking their books and bringing a message of prosperity and wealth and happiness. Now, there are many different topics and points of view from these writers and preachers who come from very different religious backgrounds, but with few exceptions, you see, if you just follow what they prescribe, your life will be better, more successful, more authentic. You see, if you just follow these steps, and your life will be purpose-driven. Pray like this, you see, and your territory will be enlarged, whatever that means. Or some of my favorite cotton candy gospel comes from Joel Osteen in his books, your best life now, or become a better you. Many of these books are bestsellers. Why? Usually it's because they make what it takes to lead a Christian life more palatable, you see. Something that can be accomplished through a series of steps or techniques that you and I can take. I wish leading the Christian life was that easy. It is not. People ask me about these books, and my answer is always the same. I tell them, well, it's not that these authors sometimes don't have some useful points to make, but if you really want to understand what it means to lead the Christian life and what it's all about, read three chapters in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. But beware when you do, because what you will hear Jesus speak in these three chapters will often be difficult and unsettling. Doing what Jesus asked is the opposite from what the world expects and demands. And much of what is in the Sermon on the Mount, we would just like to skip over, you see, because it confronts us directly with the brokenness of this world and the sin in our own lives. Our gospel for this week, like the past two weeks, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And in week one, we learned what it means to be blessed or blessed. The Greek word here is makarios, which better probably translated means happy. Happy or blessed are we that are peacemakers or humble in spirit or merciful. And last week we heard that Jesus tells us that we are to be the salt and the light of the world. Things that are already most difficult for most of us. But if those words made you feel uncomfortable, buckle your seatbelts, friends because the more difficult is on its way on what it means to lead the Christian life. How this all begins, how this all starts, really is in the final verses of last week's gospel. And first, I think it's important we recognize that Matthew's gospel was directed and written really for a Jewish audience. They were used to commandments, you see. The Old Testament Ten Commandments and all the laws in Leviticus and other places in the Torah, those first five books in our Christian Bible, were, however, just the beginning. 
The religious leaders of Jesus' day were adept at adding a host of additional laws and rules of behavior that tried to cover every situation in life. An example, the Torah said, thou shalt not steal. But what if you found something that had been lost by another person? Could you keep it? Well, the rules were that you had to sniff of where you found that particular item. And then you had to wait a prescribed amount of time. Then you could keep it. But if you didn't do these things, then you were stealing. And you remember another story, another gospel story, where Jesus' disciples are out on the Sabbath. And they decided, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them decided that they were doing work on the Sabbath. Why? Because they were picking some grains of wheat. Jesus tells us in the verse right before today's lesson, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And later on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exclaims, Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. How in the world are we ever to meet those standards? It is no wonder that we would like to avoid very much what we read in these chapters in Matthew. You and I know that these standards are impossible to meet. And that it's only through the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus that the brokenness and sin in our lives is replaced by the righteousness of this God in Christ. What Luther called the happy exchange. And by that free grace of God, we are placed in an eternal relationship with him. But I tell you, that does not mean that this grace that we received as a free gift relieves us from the law of God. And in the gospel verses that we just read today, Jesus cites the commands of Jewish law, does not dismiss them, but rather he intensifies and interiorizes them. Jesus moves the focus of the law, you see, from outward behavior to inward attitudes. From that which the world might see to that which resides in the hearts of you and of me. In today's gospel, Jesus radicalizes three commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not swear falsely. And he begins each with these authoritative teaching with the words, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus expands the sin of murder to include human anger and abandonment of reconciliation. He enlarges the sin of adultery to include human lust and the consequences of divorce and swearing falsely to include the lack of truth-telling. And do not each of these go to the very heart many times of who we are as a broken and sinful group of human beings. Perhaps it's fitting that how much of the sin and brokenness of this world does not start out with anger, with our inability to reconcile, with our th sometimes outright hatred of the other. I cannot think of a time in my lifetime where hatred and anger among nations, among peoples, among friends and neighbors in our own country has ever been more intense. I do not want to watch the news anymore because the TV screen is filled and has been now for many years with vitriol beyond description. 
Our recent politics and elections have increased the rhetoric of anger and hate to what some might call biblical proportions. Respectful conversations don't seem to exist. I watch the evening news and I shake my head and I think to myself, where is Walter Cronkite when we need him? Better yet, perhaps, where are the voices of Christians to say, as Jesus said, that we are to come to terms quickly and to reconcile with our brothers and our sisters? For if we don't, Jesus says, we are liable to judgment. And I say, look around, friends. We are now reaping what we have sown. It is not God that has brought down the judgment. We have brought judgment down upon ourselves. George, who's 48, a radio documentary producer in New Orleans, said he broke off a close relationship with an uncle who had helped him through his father's suicide because of his and his uncle's fervent political differences. We had some back and forth, he said, and it just got really deep and really ugly. And George says, I don't see this ever being fixed. Really, not ever being fixed. Jesus would not have it so. Before you come to the altar, Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come. In our next gospel verses, Jesus speaks to adultery and divorce topics that you and I do not like to hear about because both have touched our lives in some fashion. Jesus says that sexual improprieties and exploitation begin not with actions, but with thoughts within our hearts. And that divorce is more than just some sort of piece of paper. This part of the text in today is particularly a difficult one for pastors and preachers because Jesus is reaffirming the marriage bond to be a relationship that is never simply just discarded or reduced to disposable property. And what makes it so difficult to hear is that I know that everyone here has either been a party in divorce themselves at some time in their lives, maybe having great difficulties in their marriage right now, or have loved people who have gone through the pain and heartache of divorce. Would Jesus tell a spouse who was enduring domestic abuse, a loveless relationship, excruciating mental pain, when I'll stay married, you promised, or after divorce, would Jesus say, you may now never marry? I don't think that he would. Jesus' words today, however, tell us of a God that is on the side of marriage, on the side of unity and community and togetherness and enduring commitment on the side of families and children. And our lives then must be about protecting and supporting the weak and the vulnerable, not ignoring or dismissing them. I hope that you, like me, no matter what your circumstances are, dismayed in what we see in today's society. So many people are not committed to repairing the tears in their marriages and the holes in their other relationships with people. The attitude seems to be so often that, well, if the relationship works fine, that's okay. But if it doesn't, we can always end things. And also in this, it's all about me world. We are so quick to see the faults in the other person and not the sin in our own lives. 
the result can be like the rest of those objects now in our society which just seem to pervade, that are all throw away. You see, it's easier just to remove and replace than to repair. And when all of our efforts to repair and renew fail, when someone hurts us and our pain seems too much to bear, when we fail to honor our commitments and our promises and our relationships fall apart, you know that we as Christians can still come to the foot of the cross where this Christ of the Gospels is there to pick up the pieces and put us together again. And lastly, on the surface, these Jesus' last words in our, this morning's Gospel seem to be about not just swearing falsely, but rather not swearing at all. And if we believe that these words are nothing but a prohibition on profanity, or as some believe, uh, not to take an oath in a court, the point that Jesus is making is lost. Jesus' words to answer only yes, yes, and no, no, are really about truth-telling. Not so long ago, a man or a word, a handshake, a commitment, now we need pages of mostly unintelligible legal jargon for most important transactions and often for things that are insignificant. Jesus says, do what you say and say what you do. Deal with others with honesty and integrity and the truth. Choose your words carefully so that others can count upon you. A final word about that from some personal experience. In my previous careers, both military and civilian, I was in positions of authority where after listening to differing perspectives and points of view on an issue, I could say, all right, I've heard enough. This is what we're going to do. I did not ask for a vote, did not ask for consensus, just do it. And probably one of the most difficult things for me to adjust to as a pastor was, you know, just do it. doesn't often work with volunteers in a community of faith. But I ask people this. If you volunteer to do something for the work of the church or for the work of God, then do it. Don't say yes, yes, and then find that your actions reflect no, no. If the words of Christ today and some of the words of this message make you feel uncomfortable or make you perhaps squirm in your pew a little bit, then the writer of Matthew has been successful in relaying what Jesus says the Christian life ought to be about. You and I will fall short. This God in Christ knows that. But in our striving to lead this Christian life, we will reflect to all of those around us that free gift of grace and that forgiveness of sins which we have received in Christ. God grant that the world and around us and our neighbors see that in you and in me for Jesus' sake. Amen.